Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of ATL Alts. This is your host, Andre Sindate. Today, I am joined by Mark Phillips, the managing principal of 11 Tribes Ventures based in Chicago. Mark, welcome to ATL Alts. Thanks for having me, Andres. It's great to be here. Mark, I sound like a broken record, but I always ask kind of the first question when I have a guest on the show, which is, tell me about where you're from. It's a, it's a good softball to start with. I appreciate that. An easy intro. I am in Chicago currently. I live in the western suburbs. You know, one of the fun facts about me is I've actually always lived in Chicago. I went to school out here. I met my wife in college. We got married and uh, have not moved very far ever since. So I love it out here. I'm a Cubs fan. Uh, we live in the western suburbs, as I said. And uh, obviously, you mentioned that our, our firm is headquartered here in the city as well. So it's a great place to call home. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned in the opening that you manage a venture firm, your first time fund manager. Mm -hmm. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, you have a growing family. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> another another theme of, of our show is the backstory. Mm. As we talked about when we're getting to know each other over the last couple of months, um, I'm interested in hearing, you know, how did you get to where you're at today? What are some of the things that you did in your career? Yeah, absolutely. I came out of college. My, my major in, in college was actually mathematics. So I loved business. I loved the idea of business. But really what, what energized me was solving problems. And I felt like majoring in mathematics, you know, developing proofs for anybody that went through a math major experience. It is truly about solving problems and bringing variables together to create a solution. So I used that as sort of a springboard into consulting. I, I worked for Accenture Strategy for the better part of about, about four years and was in the financial services sector there. And, and so, you know, really intense sort of three to four month engagements. You're traveling to the client site. I was on the road Monday to Thursday for all four years. And great when you're 22, a little bit more tiring when you're 26. It's amazing how quickly you can age. Uh, but it was, a, it was a great learning ground, but maybe not somewhere that I wanted to spend my entire career. And so I went on to get my MBA at the University of Chicago. I went to Booth. And really, uh, you know, that was a, a formative time for me, Andres. I, I knew I didn't want to go back into consulting, but I wasn't sure what the next step was. So I, I spent that experience, those two years, really kind of exploring and, and really started to, started to feel pulled and, and called towards entrepreneurship. I am probably in the period of this next 40 minutes, you'll start to realize I'm a very high energy individual. And so working with other high energy individuals, it brings me life. It brings me energy and fulfillment. And so I wanted to find a, uh, an area, an industry, a sector that reflected that. So during my time there, I did things like I worked with a startup. Uh, I launched my own startup. It was an IoT hardware device in the diabetic space to help type 2 diabetics manage their A1C levels. That's a whole other conversation. It failed spectacularly, uh, which is a good story. But I realized through all those experiences, the investor side of the, the conversation was really interesting to me. It's really, really interesting because I loved the relationship side. To me, it was about building relationships and, and helping people recognize their potential and bringing that potential out of them. And so I graduated from Booth. I got a job in venture. I worked in venture for just shy of a year in a, in a, in a fund in Chicago. And I felt a little disillusioned, Andres. I felt like the model of venture is oriented towards turning relationships into transactions. And that's just how venture works, right? It's, it's hey, we invest in 10, eight fail, two succeed, we're successful. But to me, that felt a little bit um, 
draconian, frankly. And, and I didn't, it didn't resonate with who I am as a person and what I believe in. So I left the firm. I actually went back into consulting and with an eye on an audacious idea of what would it look like to start a venture fund whose business model, whose entire structure of incentives and alignment of those incentives leads to people flourishing. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it. I'll kind of pause there, but that's my, that's my background. That's my inspiration for what I've done and, and the journey that I've had so far. Thank you for sharing that. I noticed in, in preparing that the tag, one of the taglines from one of your, your letters was changing the narrative from burnout to flourishing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do want to talk about that right. before, before we get into that and more about what you're doing at 11 Tribes Ventures. Uh, how did the experiences you had in consulting and even uh, the brief, brief stint at another venture firm, how did you take those experiences and then put the hmm. business plan together for your firm? It's a journey. It's, uh, I, we were just catching up a few minutes ago, Andres, and you said it's an iterative process. I, it, it didn't happen overnight. Ideas would get thrown around, they get thrown at the wall, and some would stick, some wouldn't. We'd have what we thought was a good framework for what it looks like today, and we'd take it to a potential investor, someone who was giving us the generosity of their time and insight, and they'd rip it to shreds in the best way, of course, because that's what you want. You want folks who are going to be honest and transparent with their feedback. So the answer to your question, I believe, is persistence. I was just as a bit of a dog on a bone with it. You know, I refuse to see this idea die. And the story is very long and, and there's a lot of bumps and bruises, frankly, you know, and I'm, I won't get into all the details today, but the willingness uh, to not quit and to say, I believe in the general underlying principles of what we're trying to do. And I'm going to keep talking to people and I'm going to keep sharing that idea until someone is willing to run with it with me. I think that's what got us to where we are today. And you hear that story so many times with entrepreneurs, right? Uh, you know, Bill Gates, how many people told him no? I feel like he, he tracked the whole list. He talked to a thousand people and only seven said yes. I think those are the numbers. That's wild. That's wild that that happened to Bill Gates. So if you're an entrepreneur out there and you are, you are at the very earliest stages and it doesn't feel like it's moving with momentum, just keep pushing. Keep pushing because you'll get there eventually. And I, I love the analogy of Sisyphus. If you're familiar with it, Andres, he's the the he stole fire from the gods uh, in Greek mythology, and he was forced to push a boulder up a rock, uh, up a mountain for the rest of his life, for the rest of his existence. But I want to amend it slightly. Entrepreneurship is like in the earlier stages, you're Sisyphus, and you keep pushing it up, and you slip back, and then it rolls you over. But eventually, you get to the top of the mountain, and then what happens? The boulder starts going downhill, and then entrepreneurship turns into this thing of how can I keep up? How do I have the endurance? And, and we're going to talk a little bit about how we as a venture fund help those entrepreneurs who have reached that peak, but now the problem is entirely different. The I'd assume coming through consulting and then a, a really great business school and doing another stint in consulting, you built relationships all along that journey. Mm -hmm. Were the people who were early on in your journey, right out of school, even maybe some of the people in, in undergrad mm -hmm. uh, who got to know you and supported you, were those the same people that you went to with this vision of a, I want to start a venture firm? Or did you have to build a new 
network. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a, in a way. Yeah, a wonderful question. Boy, um, I wish, I'll answer your question, but before I do, I wish I had been more intentional early on to build that network. I think in my early days of consulting at Accenture specifically, it's a dynamic place. Amazing individuals work there. I'm, I'm friends with many who I still, many of my former colleagues. But I was so focused on, oh man, I got to keep my head down. I got to grind. I got to build the best models and the best PowerPoint decks that I possibly can to a fault because I think I sacrificed potentially relational capital because I was working so hard. And that's just sort of what motivated me. I wanted to get the job done. I think that was part of the reason that I, I didn't want to stay at the firm because I had sacrificed relational capital. Now, what's crazy, and I think to get to the answer of your question, the folks who have ultimately been the most influential and the most impactful in helping get this dream, this vision of a venture fund off the ground were people that I've known for a decade. And I didn't even, you know, at no point in that decade did I think to myself, oh, maybe that's a, maybe that's someone that I'm going to work with. Maybe that's someone who's going to have a big impact on something I want to build. I just, they're just friends. They're, they're acquaintances. They're people who care for me and care for my experience as a professional. And then when I came to them and I said, hey, by the way, here's something cool that I'm doing. It was so synergistic for that relationship to evolve from a personal one into a professional one. I, uh, I'm teaching a adjunct professor class at Wheaton College this fall. And we just last night had our, our third class and we covered compound interest, Andres. And I think it's the eighth one of the world in finance and in, in dollar figures. But boy, I think it's even more powerful when it comes to relational capital. If you view these relationships as transactions, as ways to get to things that you want, they're not going to generate compound interest and you're really never going to make a meaningful return. But if you're willing to just, foster those because you care about those people what a concept right but if you just truly care about them then it starts to generate compound interest five ten fifteen years down the road so don't think about what that relationship can get you in the next six to twelve months because i guarantee the answer is in all likelihood zero or very small but if you think about what that relationship could generate if you truly just cared for it over the next five ten twenty years that number starts to take a logarithmic scale rather than a linear one I uh, I drink that Kool Aid 100. <laughs> percent It's uh, it's it's 100. percent You know how I approach things, and I think that's why you and I hit it off. Yeah, um, yeah. One of the things I want to ask you, though, before we go, get get more into Eleven Tribes, is is about relationship building and the importance of yeah. you know people throughout that term network. Um, and we have LinkedIn and all these powerful tools where you can accumulate lots of connections and. Uh, yeah. there's a social media kind of gamification element to it, but really when you get down to it, um, the question I want to ask you is when it became about your company and your firm and you're carrying your flag and your business card versus, you know, with all due respect to those other organizations you worked at, it, it, right. it was someone else's, right, right. did that change the dynamic of the asks and or the mm. the way in which those interactions happened mm. i'm curious because the background of that question is uh, i'm hoping that well, i am building a podcast and i am building a platform where people that are you know they believe there's a part of them that can do something bigger mm. whether it's be an entrepreneur start a fund 
you know, spin out on, you know, their own terms with a couple of former colleagues or current colleagues and do something. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to piece together probably what you were doing, which is, you know, what do I, what do I do first? What do I do second? What do I do third? And along that path, you know, you, you have people that want to help you, but you just said something that I think was very enlightening, which is the people who are probably the most helpful were maybe not the people that you look back and thought, oh, those are the first 10 people to go talk to about this. So, you know, when you combine that first part of that question, which is, it's your thing, it's you, Mm. you know, and then it's this recognition, maybe a little bit in hindsight, that the people that have been most helpful Mm. and the biggest ambassadors to what you want to do um, help, help the audience, like, because there, there's a lot of power in that yeah. for people that see themselves doing something big yeah. and and where to go next. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, there's a lot there. <laughs> and yeah. you know that. You, you, you and I know it full well. Um, I'm going to say something, and I, I, think, I, I think it'll answer your question. Um, but I, I just, as we start to talk about the fund and our thesis, one of the principles, obviously, is, is just transparency and honesty. Right. I think venture traditionally is sort of this ivory tower business, right? Where if you're in it, you're in it, but if you're not, you're not. And I never appreciated that. It's it's uh it's not how I like to operate. So what I want to say to you is going out on that limb, taking that leap of faith, whatever cliche you want to use, is scary. It is scary. And I, I want to even take it a step further. The conversations I had when I had this idea and I typed the email and I was gonna send it to these people that I'd known for years, sending it to those folks was scarier than sending it to someone that I'd only met once or twice. And the reason why I think is we all have, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't suffer from something we like to call imposter syndrome. You've known me since I was 15 years old. You knew Mark when he was just starting high school and he was four foot 11 and 95 pounds going into freshman year, tiny little kid. And now he's trying to start this venture fund. And in my own head, I think to myself, well, they're going to think I have no business doing that. And if they tell me no, if they tell me it's a bad idea, that's going to cut even deeper. As opposed to, well, I just met, you know, Joe Smith over here and I pitched the idea. He didn't care, but Joe doesn't know me. Joe doesn't know how much, how hard I'm going to work. But that friend that you've known for decades, that person knows. But here's the thing that shocked me, Andre. It's that imposter syndrome, all these lies were in my own head and telling me bad idea. Don't do it. Fear. It was fear. And once I came to grasp with that fear and I said, no, that's that's not real. These people care for me. They want to see the best for me. And I shared the idea with them. Then things really started to take off. Fantastic. Well, what a great segue. Yeah. Let's talk about you get that email out. Yeah. (laughs) You start getting in front of people and talking. What were you telling them? What was the vision for... 11 tribes ventures. Yeah, absolutely. The vision at a, at a very high level was when we think about capital, there's three forms. The first that everyone thinks about is financial. It's money. The other two are relational capital and intellectual capital. And our belief, and I think many would share this, is that financial capital is the least interesting and frankly, the least difficult to achieve. So again, if you're a founder listening to this and, and you're building something, I know that that round sounds like a really big deal. But what's even more important is having the right people around you and the right advisors to help you make the right decisions. 
And so our whole thesis was formed on this belief that financial capital should be on the bottom of that list and not the top. And from there, we looked at some of the problems that we believed were eminent in the venture industry. This industry that is world-renowned for creating innovation and fostering innovation has never really innovated on itself. It's been around for 30, 40 years. The alignment of incentives, the structure of deals has always been the same. But we haven't figured out ways to really shift the needle on performance other than finding that billion-dollar unicorn that's going to sell and, and make you a ton of money. And so when we looked at the market, Andres, we thought to ourselves, what's the biggest pain point that we can find and how can we build a solution for it? And what jumped out to us was 80 to 85% of startups fail every single year. That's a shocking number when you let that sink in. And as someone who is, is starting his own thing, and to many who I believe are on this podcast are doing the very same thing, I know this isn't just you know, hey, I just, I'm doing it in the middle of business school while I'm trying to get my MBA. No, this is people dedicating their livelihoods to a dream. And if you really process that failure rate, it's devastating because that means there's 85% of these people who have to go back to square one, who have to figure out a way to feed their families. I believe it is that powerful and entrepreneurship is that impactful. And when we dug into the data of that 85% failure rate, it wasn't what we expected. I think many people would focus, you know, focus on timing or the product or the technology. You pick it, something that has to do with the operational orientation of the business. But when we dug into the data, what we realized was 60 to 70% of the time, those failures are because of people. It's because you and your co-founder no longer see eye to eye and you, you, don't, you can't work together. It's because you've got an investor on your cap table and in your boardroom that's toxic that really only wants you to sell the business as quickly as possible so they can generate a return on their investment. It's because you're experiencing crippling depression and anxiety. That's hard to say. It really is. It's a harder conversation to have when an entrepreneur is going through it. It's because you're struggling with substance abuse or your family life is, is, is crumbling around you because your balance and your priorities are out of whack. Those are hard conversations to have, but most of the time, more often than not, when a business fails, it's because one of these issues that I've touched on, among others, but generally issues related to people, is damaging the business in an irreparable fashion. So when we started the fund, we said to ourselves, okay, well, what can we do? What are some really simple things we can do to help reduce that churn and reduce that burnout? Just like you said at the top, how do we shift the narrative from burnout to flourishing? And one of the simple things that we're really excited about, Andres, is when we invest, our average check size at the seed stage is two hundred to $250,000. When we invest, we allocate 2% of committed capital directly to the founder for them to invest into their own well-being. And so maybe you're dealing with depression and anxiety, and you need to work with a counselor or a therapist. Maybe you're dealing with co-founder conflict. You and your co-founder no longer can work together. Well, I think you need a coach. You need someone to come in and do uh, you know, a relationship management. And, and I, I laugh a little bit, but that's so real. It's so real. And the more we can talk about it and the more we can help founders work through those issues, the better. So we started doing that. We started investing and it's a $10 million fund and we've raised a big, big portion of that. We're going to close it here in the next few months. But as we started to invest, Andres, we realized the financial capital is great. It took my own medicine, frankly. The financial capital is great. 2% commitment. Cool gives them the space and the time to do that, but without the human capital, without the people to help you do that, that hard work of becoming your best self, 
it's useless. So we've actually launched another organization. I helped found it. It's called the Jeremiah Collective, and it is a group of well-being practitioners, folks who have deep entrepreneurial experience. Maybe they've built their own company. They're on the other side, and they say, I want to give back. I want to help that next generation of founders understand that investing into themselves, taking time to make sure that they are a present mother or father, a present you know, husband or wife, is the most important thing that they can do. So we've got a platform of well-being practitioners. And one of the unique aspects of our fund is when we invest into you, you get direct access into that Jeremiah Collective. If you need help with your co-founder, if you need help managing your team or being a better leader or speaker, whatever it might be for our founders, we bring that access to you and we help you become the best version of yourself. So this is something that most venture funds, I, I, I hope your listeners are hearing this and they're like, whoa, I haven't heard that before because that's what we're trying to do. And it's been really exciting. Investors are excited about it, but I'm happy to report that more important than that, entrepreneurs are excited about it because finally there's a venture fund that's talking about them. And, uh, you know, frankly, I think we're on the early wave of doing this. And I think in 10 years, if every venture fund isn't talking like this, I'd be shocked. I'd be shocked. So I think we're early in this, but I think there's going to be a lot of fast followers who are saying, hey, we're investing into you because the number one priority of a venture fund is to make their people flourish. The well-being component and the mental health and the stigma of talking about well-being and mental health in finance and in, as, as we call it, alternative investing right. um, is real, yeah. 100%. Yep. Yep. And one of the companies that I'm advising through the Techstars program, uh, one of the things that I was most impressed with that platform is that they brought in early on the first three or four weeks of the accelerator um, folks to talk about the mental well-being of the founders, knowing that they were about to go through this sprint of 12, 13 weeks. And the experience that they've had in seeing burnout and depression and the challenges that obviously smaller entrepreneurial companies go through yep. that has nothing to do with capital. Yeah. It has nothing to do with customers. Um, so I, uh, I give you guys a lot of credit for leading that conversation and I'm looking forward to having you back on to hear about some of the things that you've observed with CEOs and mm-hmm. founders and are they willing to actually take advantage and open up and be vulnerable, mm-hmm. um, with some of those resources. And I, I do think you're right. I think we're at the very beginning of that. Um, shifting gears a little bit with respect to the companies that you're the founders and the CEOs that you're talking to, you hear this term partner thrown out in the industry a lot. What does that mean for hmm. your firm? I mean, beyond some of the resources that you just articulated, um, but what, what does that really mean? I mean, tell us. When you say partnering with a founder, what are, what should they expect mm. from from you all besides obviously financial capital? Yeah, there's other things that you bring to the table. Absolutely, I, I read the most interesting one of the most interesting Harvard Business Review articles a couple of weeks ago, which I I always am looking for content that's talking about failure rates because clearly that's part of our thesis, right? How do we cut down on the failure rates? How do we create a fund where 
50% of our portfolio companies are profitable. Uh, that's really our vision. That's our goal. But the article said something really interesting, which was we put so much, it's really a bias, frankly, we put so much failure, so much of the responsibility of failure on the founder. But you go look at any successful founder and I guarantee they will have a huge village of people that have supported them through that process. And so they won't take, it's a little bit like Monday, Monday morning quarterback, right? Like I can blame that one person who is throwing the ball the most, but what about the offensive lineman who missed the block or the, the botched punt? Everyone is responsible for the success of an organization. And so when you use the word partner, man, I love it because it goes deep. It goes really, really deep. And I believe that a good partner comes along and they do a number of different things. They bring back to our three forms of capital. They bring, of course, financial capital, but not every partner has to invest. I think you can have partners who are bringing relational capital. Hey, you should talk to this person. Oh, you should connect with this potential buyer, this potential client. And then the third, and I, I really think maybe the most important is intellectual capital. So one of the things we've done through our fund is, is our, uh, we, I observed intellectual capital and I'm a young guy. I've got some experience. I can help businesses grow, but I don't have more than a lot of folks who have built and sold and exited companies. I don't pretend to be the expert in the room. So we created a venture partner program within our fund. And our venture partners are cream of the crop from an intellectual expertise and intellectual capital perspective. It's a group of 15 folks at this point, all of whom are in a stage of their career where they have seen stuff, right? They've seen the good, they've seen the bad, they've seen <laughs> they've seen the, the potholes both from a business perspective, but also from a personal perspective. And we've actually structured our fund in a way where we cap the overall upside of the GP to allow our venture partners to participate in the upside of the deals we invest into. And what that does, I talked earlier on about incentive alignment. We are aligning incentives to help intellectual capital be present in the boardroom of the companies that we invest into. So a true partner, Andres, I think, brings something to the table on all three forms of capital that we've talked about. And at the end of the day, financial is the least important. And a real partner is going to really focus on, on relational and intellectual capital and bring something to bear in a really meaningful fashion. And where your focus in the life cycle of companies mm -hmm. is where? Yeah. Like what 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 is the what is the, 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 the stage of a company? And then second follow up is what sectors of the of of the economy are you targeting sure. with eleven tribes? Sure. So from a stage perspective, to use the nomenclature of venture, we are really a seed stage investing fund. A lot of folks say that, but the problem that I'm observing is seed stage means you may invest in some pre-revenue companies. We've actually invested in some pre-product companies because we believe so deeply in the founder, first and foremost, and we believe that the product is something that's amazing and we want to see it brought to fruition. So I think a lot of folks call themselves seed stage, but they're looking for seed companies that are really series A companies. And this is just the game, right? So let me take a step back. We are a seed stage investor. We look for, you know, hopefully post-revenue, but we'll invest pre-revenue. Post-revenue companies who have some level of traction and are looking to figure out product market fit and scale. We will follow on invest into the Series A. Uh, we don't want to make our first investment the Series A just because we're a smaller fund and we need to reserve follow-on capital in a strategic fashion. So that's our stage. That's where we're really trying to play. At, at that stage, you're looking at companies that are maybe at the most five people. 
And that's part of our whole thesis, Andres, which is if we can be early, we can instill a culture, uh, a set of principles, a balance from a work and a life perspective that allows our founders, allows our founding teams to run the race and finish the race. If we get in and we're investing series A, B, series C, that culture is already in place. That toxicity is potentially already integrated into the whole organization. But we take a seat on the board and we are really intentional about helping our portfolio companies establish a durable and sustainable model for their business. The second question you asked was about industry. We're lucky enough that we can be an industry agnostic fund. So we actually will invest across industries. We've invested into you know, ag tech, fintech, healthcare, uh, agriculture, I already said agri- education, excuse me. We've invested in a number of B2B SaaS products that are focused on enterprise. So we're across the industry, but here's the question that we ask. We've got this group of venture partners who have deep industry and deep expertise. The first question we ask when we look to make a potential investment is, do we have that relational and intellectual capital to bear? Where if we were a partner with this company, could we bring meaningful value on day one? That's how we evaluate whether we want to invest into an industry or not. And if the answer is no, then we're going to politely pass. And we're going to say, hey, we think you can find better partners. And in fact, let us introduce you to a couple because we know folks who are maybe better equipped to bring you that expertise and that focus in the industry that you're playing in. So that's how we operate. We want to be good, good stewards of what we're doing, good stewards of our networks, even if we're not a full partner with one of those startups. And when you're looking at, you know, maybe barely post-revenue, even some pre-revenue companies, <clears throat> as the old adage goes, you know, you're, you're betting, you're betting yeah. on the jockeys. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These old terms, you know, die hard in our, in our <laughs> business, but it's, a, but you're investing in the team, you're investing in the people. And, and you want to follow on with that relational capital. So you're clearly doubling down even after you make the financial investment on the people. That's right. Um, so what are the characteristics hmm. if, you know, if, if, if a founder and uh, an aspiring uh, startup team are listening to the show, yeah, hopefully, yeah, hopefully. What, yeah. What, what are the characteristics and the qualities that, you know, attract, um, 11 tribes to them and and hopefully vice versa. Yeah, I can articulate it. So let me give you a a cliche, a little like pithy cliche, and then I'll, I'll maybe dive into the specifics. We're looking for founders who are obsessed with a problem and not their own solution. And I think it says a lot because the second part of that, that little phrase implies that the founder thinks they have all the answers. And I think any good founder would tell you, I'm just here to discover, right? I'm just here to figure out, I, I, I want all the help that I can get. But we've come across founders who are obsessed with their own solution. And we just can't provide the value that we want to provide to someone like that. But if I find someone who says, I can't believe this problem still exists in our world. I can't believe people have to live in a way where they can't benefit from the technology that I want to build. And I'm not going to stop at anything until I see this technology, I see this solution brought to the world. Boy, I get I get goosebumps when I hear someone talk like that. And I'm like, yes, Can am I, would you be kind enough to allow us to be a part of that? That's how I feel, you know, and that gets me really, really excited. So what, what are those attributes? Um, it's persistence. I said that at the top of this podcast, you know, I mean, I think that's something that 
I've been blessed with. And um, it's hard getting up when you get knocked down. But if you're willing to be persistent and understand it just takes time, that's that's really, really cool. Uh, two others that come to mind, honestly, are integrity. And I define integrity as uh, who are you when no one's watching? And that gives me as an investor a lot of confidence. If I know if you're of, of high integrity, then even when I'm not present, even when you're interacting with your team, you're going to be building a culture. You're going to be building an organization that's going to last. And that to me is really important. And then the last I would say is being humble. Uh, I, I think we've seen enough examples of founders and entrepreneurs who have had success. And, and here's the crazy thing, right? If you're not humble, if, if you attach yourself, you know, again, defining humble as perhaps not placing yourself worth in what you're building, right? And understanding that like your value is intrinsic to who you are and not what you can do. Because what happens, Andres, when people attach and assign their value to what they can do? Well, either it goes really well and we get the WeWork guy <laughs> who thinks he's God, who thinks he's Midas. Everything he touches turns to gold or everything goes to zero and you think you're worthless. And boy, that that it just breaks your heart. Right. And we've all seen that happen. And um, nobody hopes hopes that upon anyone. So I want to find people who have a good balance and understand that, hey, I'm not going to define myself by what I can produce. I'm going to define myself by who I am. You talked about earlier in the podcast the importance of studying failures and the insights when you looked at the data of 80, up to 85% of startups will fail this year. And you talked about um, some of the personal challenges that the team will have to, you know, some of the dynamics, um, of, of balance being off and priorities. But the other thing that you said that I wanted to ask you about was the team and the people. And you gave the example of, you know, whether it's a real one from your experience, uh, or it's one that we just, you know, talk about, um, founders just kind of grow apart and, uh, they drift apart. And you see that, uh, and it's real. So I want to ask you, when you meet a team of three to five, you know, early stage, everybody's got a lot of enthusiasm. They seem to check a lot yeah. of the proverbial boxes. What are you looking for from that CEO and founder with respect to how they've architected their team, mm. how they've allowed their team to form. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's so important as a founder to surround yourself with people who will go on this journey of building a, a startup when there's all this uncertainty. Right. And so part of it is just getting people that they can trust, but you know, there's also the reality that you got to execute and show progress and right. momentum right. and all this kind of stuff. So what are, what are the characteristics that, you're looking at when you meet the team and ask the founder about their team? Yeah. Yeah. A great question. A great question. I think we actually have a set of principles. Uh, we've got five that we sort of abide by. I don't think there's one right way to build a business, but I think there is a set of principles that's the right way to form the foundation for that business. And so what I mean is, you know, there's not, if there was a clear path and there was a game plan, everyone would do it. Right. But that's the beauty of entrepreneurship is it takes creativity and it takes thoughtfulness. But, um, you know, one thing that really jumps out to me from your question is 
we want to find founders who lead as servants. And what I mean by that is, is putting other people first. And it's, it's abundantly clear when you get on a call with somebody, if they are there to prop themselves up, or if they're there to see those around them become the best version of themselves. Uh, you, you suggested, let's talk about a team. Uh, let's use a very real, real world example that everyone knows, Tom Brady. I think Tom Brady is one of the most remarkable athletes, uh, of course, right? Uh, that's not a unique take. But why is that? Anywhere he goes, he elevates the play of everyone around him. He's the first one there. He's the last one to leave. I, I believe Tom Brady is a brilliant servant leader. Because he expects the best out of everyone else and he wants to see them thrive. That's amazing. That's amazing. And when you create a culture and an ethos that reflects that, well, we've seen how it worked out for Tom Brady, right? And that's, that's really amazing. So it's one thing that we look for when we, we uh, meet with teams. If you're a founder and you're trying to understand why that venture fund is talking to you for the fifth time, well, it might not be just because they want to look at your financial projections again. They might want to understand how are you interacting as a team? How, what's the dynamic between you and your co-founder? And, you know, you better believe that, and I'm, maybe I'm giving an industry secret away, but you better believe they're watching everything. They're not just looking at your deck and your, your financial projections. So that's the big one that jumps out to me. Are they putting others first? And do they truly desire the best for everyone? Or are they there to really prop themselves up and do this thing where, hey, I've got an idea, it's brilliant, and I have to make it come to life, right? And it's me, it's me, it's me. So that's really the, the, the first one. The, the second one that I would add is, you know, our, our, another principle we like to talk about is we want to invest in businesses that are seeking the transformation of their communities. That's something that we've heard a lot about these days. When I say transformation of community, I don't mean the city of Chicago, frankly. I might. What I mean is when you're building a business, you're creating a community. Your customers, your clients, your investors, everyone associated with what you're doing, your, your, your suppliers, you're creating a community. And you have a choice. You can exist as a, a, a hub or a spoke in that wheel in a way that tries to leverage others for what you can get from them and creates transactions and not relationships. Or you can exist as a business that seeks the flourishing of that community and tries to transform it in the way that you interact, in the way that you pay your bills, in the way that you negotiate deals. The list goes on, right? the ways that you can impact that community. And we are looking for teams that want to transform communities through the way that they work and through the product that they deliver. And I'm sure you can imagine, you've had enough conversations with startup founders, Andres. You can very quickly understand what people are motivated by. And if I'm having a conversation with someone who's building a team with an ethos that says, we just want to sell this company as quickly as possible in the next 36 months, boy, I'm concerned because A, that's not the ethos I want to get to. And B, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be successful in that. And when you don't get an exit, what's next? Well, I'm guessing you're just going to go on to the next thing where you're going to make more money. So those are the things that we try to think about. Those are the behavioral aspects of the founders we want to invest into. And we really try to parse that out through our conversations. I, uh, I I felt this podcast was going in the right direction, and then you reminded me as a Chiefs fan that <laughs> Tom Brady, I think, won his seventh Super Bowl at the expense of Patrick Mahomes <laughs> and the Chiefs. But uh, I agree with you. Now, he is – yeah, no, no. Oh, I, my gosh. I, I'm, I'm a fan of Tom Brady, and I can't say that I was a big fan early in his career 
Um, it became clear as he got to the middle of his career and lost a couple of Super Bowls and then came back yeah. and won a Super Bowl that if you're somebody that believes in, you know, just the comeback and you're somebody that believes in, you know, the, the underdog, if you will, you know, leaving that dynasty and, and he making the move to Tampa, um, how can you not root for, for success like that? Yeah. Even became a bigger fan at the expense of my Chiefs. Yeah. You know, I would rather lose to I'd rather lose to Tom Brady, you know, than than a nail biter to somebody else who will fade into history well said. differently. Well said. Yeah. Um well look, as we round the corner, as I say, there's always uh lots of questions that will have to go unanswered. But before we do that, I want to ask you one more question. Um about the portfolio more broadly the themes that you're investing around, you talked about being industry agnostic, but <clears throat> what are the companies out there, given where we are, that um, most excite you? Hmm. You know, what are they transforming that gets you excited? Yeah. You've clearly got a real uh, clear uh, uh, focus on, you know, the values and, and the things that you're looking for in founders and the things you guys want to provide to them. But what are the industries and, sure. and themes that get you most excited? I appreciate that question because I think in, in you know, what I wanted to share with your listeners today is something that I think is unique. And obviously that is the emphasis that you just alluded to. But we are at our core still investors and we need to be profitable for our LPs and, and we're going to generate a meaningful return. And we think it's going to be outsized because of our strategy. But doesn't mean that we don't have perspectives on the industry, right? We're not We're not all just, you know, the soft behavioral side of things. So I appreciate the question. Some of the things that are really interesting to me recently, um, you know, and, and you're going to hear this from a lot of different folks, but we've made a number of investments just in the last several months in what I would describe as the future of work in a distributed workforce. Um, you know, I'm really excited about a deal we're closing right now, a follow on into a series A uh, with a group called Circle. And Circle is basically asking themselves, surveys don't work. Surveys don't work. They're point in time. They're not longitudinal. But how do we understand the engagement of our employees on a longitudinal perspective. And they've got some amazing customers who are just raving about their product because it's it's new, it's, it's innovative. Uh, one of them called it a category defining technology. We're gonna see technology growing in a way that helps big enterprises understand the engagement and the potential risk for churn of their employee base. And that's huge, that's huge because the war for talent is never going away. So that's the first one. I think the other two sectors that get me really excited, Andres, are education. I think talk about a broken system, <laughs> boy, it is, uh, it is at the top of the list. And so we've, we've had a couple of different ed tech investments that we've made. And then the third is, uh, and I wish we had more time for this, but it's agriculture. Uh, the average age of the American farmer is north of 70 years old at this point. Our generation of farmers is aging out and there's not a current solution in place for how are we going to make it work moving forward? Uh, you want to talk about a, a recession-proof industry? It's agriculture. We all need food. We need to keep eating. So how do we use technology and and software to help improve the margins to make the best and brightest in our gen next generation want to become farmers? Because it's a brutal thing. It's a brutal, brutal job and one that is very thankless. But we need to figure out a way to, to kind of turn that corner and make it uh, an industry that is in the 21st century, frankly. So those are three spaces that we're really passionate about, um, industries that are ripe for disruption, frankly. And we think there's a lot of brilliant entrepreneurs working on problems in those spaces as we speak. 
Well, as a Kansas boy who married an Iowa girl, um, <laughs> those are two states with, you know, obviously agriculture is, is uh, a significant yeah. part of the of the GDP and the fabric of those small towns and communities. Yeah. And uh, you're in Illinois, so you get that too. Yep. Um, so I'll be curious to hear how that uh, theme is expressed in your portfolio yeah. the next time you, you come on, hopefully, and visit us. Um the, you know, the two questions I love to ask people at the end are, number one, what gives you optimism about 11 tribes? You're a first-time fund manager. You're, you know, coming up on the, you know, the, the, the end of, is it your second year? So you've made some investments. Um, and obviously there's a lot that excites you. So Clearly, you'd probably have a lot to be optimistic about, but I'd like to hear it from you. Yeah. Um, what you know? What gets you going now that you're in this to win this and 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 deep into it? Yeah, <laughs> I love it. It's pretty simple. I'm really encouraged. Uh, let's just be very transparent. Our world is uh, there's a lot going on, right? Like that's the simplest yeah. way to put it. And there's agreement on issues, disagreement on issues. What I'm really encouraged by, kind of crosses party lines and, and, and socioeconomic profiles, investors are looking to put their money to work in a way that does more than just return more money. And I mean, if that isn't just something to give you a lot of hope and a lot of optimism, I don't know what is. Um, but there is, a, there is a trend and it's more than a trend now. It is a belief and an ethos that we need to invest in a way that brings, I, I, I hesitate to use the word impact because we're not an impact fund. We're not. We are a fund that's going to generate a, a competitive, not a concessionary return. But our investors understand that, wow, I can put money to work here in a way that, yeah, generates more money, but does it in a way that, to go all the way back to the start, changes the narrative from burnout to flourishing. And there is a, a segment, a big segment, a growing segment of investors who desire to see more than just a single bottom line. And I'm really encouraged by that. I'm really encouraged. And so, you know, if you're listening to this and that's you, um, you know, we're a little bit in a sweet spot there where, yeah, we're not an impact fund, but we can generate a competitive return while doing good, do good by doing well, or do well by doing good, excuse me, or call an impact fund. I, I, I know a bunch in Chicago, I'd be happy to introduce you because we need more money going to work in that way. And so that gives me a lot of optimism because I think as, as, as I've talked about many times so far, this podcast, financial capital does matter. It might not be the most interesting, but we need more of it in the right places. So I get really encouraged by that. Awesome. And then, you know, the other question I'm asking my guests, because as a father of three, yeah. you know, as a husband, um, now a member of the media, somebody told me the other day, I don't know if I should <laughs> take that as a compliment or as a dig. That's exciting. Uh, and, you know, coaching and all these other things. Um, family's front and center for me and I know your family's growing. And so I love to ask busy, successful, highly engaged, very thoughtful folks that, um, that come on my podcast, what works, what's the system, what's your, what are your life hacks that allow you to have productivity, you know, alignment with the things you want to, um, commit your time to. Yeah. And and now you've obviously got lots of limited partners and yeah. uh, and a growing a growing base of, of uh, founders who 
want your counsel, want your advice. So how do you make it all work? Yeah. What are the things that, that help you get, get through the week? I, I feel so I'm going to, I'm having imposter syndrome as we speak, Andres, because I'm so bad at these things. Uh, and we all are right. Everyone struggles and it's so important to have time to, to meditate and, you know, focus on family and faith and friends, right? Like these things all matter. Fitness, that's important. Workout. I'm not going to go. I don't have any like really great life hacks. Like, oh, wake up at 4 a.m. every morning and take a cold shower. I don't do that. I don't. I wish I could. Here's my answer. If you're listening to this and you're in a place where work is a burden, you're going to your day job and you are completely unfulfilled. And it is just the only reason you're there is because you need to pay the bills and feed the family. I 100% respect that. I was that's how I felt in consulting. My encouragement would you would be to you to take a step out in faith and say, "Hey, what else is there?" Follow that idea, pull that thread, right? Take a chance, have a conversation with someone because the way I'm able to do all the things that you mentioned is because when I work, this conversation I'm having with you right now, I'm going to sign off and I feel so energized. Because what I'm doing brings me so much energy and fulfillment because I've, I've found the intersection of what I think I'm good at and what I think the world needs. And when you're able to find that, you know, logging on at 11 p.m. at night to handle emails, it actually doesn't feel like work. I feel grateful and blessed to have the opportunity to do it. So that's my life hack. It's hard. It, 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 it takes time. And I feel lucky to have gotten here a little bit, maybe younger than some others. But if you can find it, you'll know what I mean. And uh, I just my hope for everyone on this call is that you can find true fulfillment and meaning in the work that you do. And, and here's the good news. It can happen right where you are or somewhere else, right? It's just about a matter of perspective of how you view the work that you're doing. So I hope that's helpful. It's not a great life hack, but that's how I think about it. And uh, I hope it resonates with a few of your listeners. I am confident that it will. I want to thank you, Mark, for joining me today. Uh, it was a, a really great conversation. I've taken to, um, you know, planting the seed that I want to have, you know, my guests back on in, in uh, six months and check yeah. in and really build this conversation uh, off of some of the things that you talked about today. So with that, we'll leave it there, as I know you have many things uh going on and uh, a growing busy family to sure. tend to, but I appreciate you joining me today, Mark uh, Phillips, Managing Principal, 11 Tribes Ventures in Chicago. I appreciate your time today on ATL Alt. Thanks, Andres. Have a great day. Thank you.